0: year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories.
1: Hey there, this is Josh Ossom and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on the band Finiscad and their song Coppertone. Our special guest is Finiscad drummer Jono McPhee. were a band that shone brightly, if only briefly, in the mid-1990s. Nominated for two Aria Awards, the four-piece was made up of Dave Thomas on vocals and rhythm guitar, Lincoln B. Croft on bass, the drummer Jono McPhee, and lead guitarist Bill Copeland. Finny topped the alternative single charts with their song Coppertone, as well as the alternative albums charts with their debut album Wider Screen. It's called the music business for a reason, and this episode is a great lesson for any young band or musician that dreams of success. The Finnish Cad story didn't end with a Hollywood fairy tale finish. However, it did sort of start off that way, with a Musicians Wanted ad placed in the classifieds.
2: That's exactly how it happened. That was the old drum media, street press, that's right, yeah. Dave went to school in Queensland. He actually went to school and was in the same year as the boys from Powderfinger, and they'd had a. They were already not established at that. Well, they were. They were already a band at that time, and um, I think he could see the potential in them, and he wanted something similar. Um, Struggling to put something together in Queensland, in Brisbane. So yeah, he came to Sydney with a mission. Him and uh, a manager at the time, uh, yeah, put the ad in the classifieds and were had a vision on on exactly what sort of, you know, sort of sound they wanted, that uh, high-energy sort of melodic pop. Yeah, the three boys answered the ad and, yeah, away we went. You know, it, it wasn't something... I was really looking for. I was just, you know, looking for the experience of auditioning. I really didn't want to be distracted by joining a band. I just wanted to focus on my studies. But um, you sort of realize, you know, when you're onto a good thing straight away. And um, yeah, it, it all made sense. I, I knew this was something I wanted to pursue. I'd been playing in bands, you know, throughout school and this and that, uh, and not achieving the level of musicianship I wanted to. You know, you're often only as good as those that are around you. And then suddenly, I was—I
1: um, felt like I was in a, you know, professional atmosphere with the with the right guys. Finis quickly attracted the attention of all the local record labels, all vying to sign the band that many saw as the next big thing.
2: Yeah, we were gigging at some pretty ordinary pubs. We were working really hard, um, doing a lot of uh, shows, but we attracted interest from all the record companies very quickly. Um, you know, we went from, you know, playing pretty ordinary venues to no people to all of a sudden, you know, playing um, still ordinary venues, but, you know, we'd have, you know, there'd be 50-odd guys showing up in suits from all the record companies, whether it be Sony, Warner Brothers. I mean, once, uh, once somebody... Uh, show some interest in you. I mean, everyone comes out of the woodwork to see what's going on. Well, It felt, it felt good. I think we were aware that, uh, you know, it was the first batch of songs we'd written, 10, 15 songs that we were, you know, we were playing. So we were aware that we were very green and, uh, you know, we really needed uh, time to get our songwriting where we needed it to go. But I think we attracted the attention just on our live performance, you know, just, just an energetic, tight band.
1: Every group wants to sign a record deal that'll set them up and allow their musical dreams to become a reality. However, dealing with the lawyers and trying to choose which is the best contract to sign is about as far away from creating music as you could possibly get.
2: It was terribly hard. It, it, it really took us, it took us 18 months. You know, we had, uh, you know, sort of the number one music lawyer in the time, Brett Oten, working for us. And it was it was a really long time and, and it probably took an effect on us. Instead of getting on with, you know, writing and playing the music, we were distracted about uh, who to sign with and, and, and all the, the finer details of what goes on. Looking back, there's a lot to be said for, you know, sort of keeping that independence. And that was something we were looking at. We were approached by a couple of managers that, that sort of said, look, don't sign with the record companies. You know, I'll invest in you and, um, you know, we'll keep it simple and, but uh, it, it's, it's hard when you're young, you know, to, uh, you know, grasp what's going on and, you know, everyone wants a piece of you and uh... hindsight's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it really is. You, you know, you can look back at, uh, and say woulda, shoulda, coulda, but, um, you know, it, it was a distraction for us, you know. I- ideally, it, it, we you know, if, if we could have kept self-funding ourselves, I think, um, you know, we, we might have been better off.
1: After doing their due diligence and taking as many precautions as they thought they could possibly take, Finis got signed on the dotted line with one of the most prestigious labels in Australia, Mushroom Records. Mushroom was led by Michael Gadinski, who had a proven track record of guiding some of the most successful acts in Australia, including the likes of Skyhooks and Kylie Minogue. You look back through the
2: 80s and just about every band that had some sort of success in Australia um, was on the Mushroom label. We um, I mean we had interest from all the other record companies to sign sort of worldwide deals but we just wanted to sign for Australia only and try and nail that market first and then maybe shop ourselves overseas. Well that's the that's the direction the mushroom saw for us. Um, you know he's such a, a likable character, Michael Gidinski, and um, you know it was it was hard to go past working with him. I mean, the upside of of signing with a major label is they can provide opportunity that perhaps when you stay independent that you can't, which necessarily isn't always a good thing, but um, it's hard to knock back opportunities like that, yeah.
1: When a record label's marketing team starts to put a plan together for a band, it quite often doesn't align with how the band sees themselves, and this just becomes confusing for everyone involved.
2: We were sort of struggling for identity and, and, and you know, uh, finding a niche market. We were going quite well in Sydney and Melbourne doing our own shows in the inner city. And we were still seen as a sort of an indie band, so to speak. But, uh, you know, the booking agent we were with was getting us. We weren't sure where to place us, you know. We played with everyone from the commercial I suppose you could say the commercial triple M kind of bands like Cold Chisel and Screaming Jets and then again we were hooking up with alternative bands like Primus and the Jesus Lizard and we sort of weren't sure where we fit in, you know. I think we were confusing ourselves and probably confusing the general public.
1: When a young band first hits the highway to start touring the countryside, it's often romanticised. However, dig a little deeper and you'll find a million rock and roll stories about the hardships of life on the road.
2: Yeah, it's hard. I think when you're young, um, I mean, you're not sure what the definition of success is. You really don't know what you want. Um, We were touring up and down the East Coast, living out of a suitcase. And, you know, we were were starting to gather fans. And, um, you know, it's all about building this perception of who you are. But But it was hard with no money. You know, you're out there entertaining people that are working during the week and on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night going out and having fun and spending money yet you're battling to scrape together enough money to eat, let alone, you know, sort of enjoy yourself. So, yeah, it's tough. It's tough, you know. You leave your family and your, and your friend group behind and, um, you know, yeah. The first uh, summer we toured the East Coast, well, actually we were on our way to Adelaide from Melbourne and I can't remember, where we were in the middle of nowhere and we were having, it was Christmas Day, and we were having Christmas lunch at a, at a dodgy, you know, 24-hour servo truck stop. It sort of dawned on me then, well, you know, this is, you've got to do some hard yards, and it dawned on me then that, you know, probably uh, missing family and friends, and yeah, you can't be prepared what you're in for, you know, um, when you're on a shoestring budget, you know, it definitely makes things harder.
1: Released in 1996, Coppertone is a song that comes from a period when Australian alternative bands ruled the local airwaves. Coppertone would become one of the anthems of the summer, although originally the band didn't rate the song that highly.
2: That's actually true. It was probably the only song that was written through just jamming. Um, You know, the rest, you know, we sat down, you know, with a riff and and, and really sort of formulated it. And yeah, it it was, it was sort of one of the first, uh, you know, rehearsals we had. And um, yeah, yeah, it was was funny how it came about. Just a, a sort of an organic thing. Yeah. We did an East Coast tour before this happened, uh, supporting, you know, uh, just other local bands wherever we went. And all of a sudden, once you have a song that's on Triple J, you're exposed. You know, I mean, they're nationwide. So all of a sudden, we were doing a headline tour of of the East Coast and, and starting to pull people wherever we went, not just our hometown. But we didn't see Coppertone at the time as the song uh, we thought was the standout. I mean, we sent our EP to Triple J trying to direct them towards a couple of other songs, Lead the Day in particular, That's the direction we thought we were heading. We thought we were more sort of, uh, you know, high-energy, sort of cutting-edge sort of rock. And we really didn't rate cobberton at all. It was just, we, we saw it as a filler on the EP. And then all of a sudden, I remember we were um, driving to a gig and Cobbertone's coming on the radio and it was quite surreal. We're thinking, what's going on here? They're playing Cobbertone? But it did make sense all of a sudden when we heard it. It, it, it felt like, uh, you know, it, it was a radio hit. And it did. It sort of captured, you know, that summer sort of vibe um, you know that upbeat, happy kind of uh, feel. Yeah, it's, it is a good feeling when you uh, play live, and uh, you know people are identifying with the song and singing along. And like I say, it gives you Triple J gives you the ability to go anywhere in the country, and people recognise your song. It's giving you nationwide airplay. Yeah, it came as a bit of a shock. You know, it wasn't the 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 direction we thought we were going to take. And it sort of did confuse us and, well, not didn't confuse us, but it influenced the way we started to write then. We thought, all right, this is us, you know. We, we're trying to uh, not write the next copper tone, but, you know, come up with songs that were in that similar vein initially we thought we were going to be more of a hard rock band bands that were appearing at the time maybe like a grinspoon and you living end were coming out of the we thought we were going to take that sort of direction and we definitely saw ourselves as uh, you know a, a high energy sort of band and you know copper tone sort of really didn't fit that mold um i mean we were uh You know, we thought, uh, well, here we go. This is something a a little bit different to maybe some of the bands that were were playing. So, we, you know, we sort of went with that poppy, swingy kind of vibe.
1: Television has always played an important part in Australian music, from shows like Six O'Clock Rock, Bandstand, GTK, through to Countdown, Sounds and, of course, Rage. In the 90s, it was the ABC show Recovery that broke new ground.
2: Well, uh, Recovery was recorded first thing in the morning and from memory it was pre-recorded so i can remember the couple of times we were on there you know you'd, you'd be playing a gig in melbourne on the friday night and you'd be at uh, at the recovery television studio at six o'clock in the morning um so yeah that was different you know it's hard to get up for a high energy gig you know doing it in a in an atmosphere with cameras on you first thing in the morning definitely a big challenge but um like i say it was an exciting time it's a shame that there isn't you know a saturday morning music show. That's purely Australian.
1: When it came to recording their debut album, Finny Scad, who was still relatively young and inexperienced in the music business, were convinced to head to the USA and record with a big-name producer. They linked up with John Agnello, an American producer who had previously worked with Sonic Youth, Paddy Smythe and Dinosaur Jr., just to name a few. Working with Agnello, the band created a fantastic album, Wider Screen. While they were living and recording in America, despite all the reassurances coming from back home, Finiscad quickly realised how difficult it was going to be to crack into the American market.
2: It was a big decision. Uh, You know, Mushroom at the time had signed a, uh, you know, probably close to a dozen bands that were in a similar mould to us, but... um, you know, we, uh, we thought we were a band that would build over a couple of albums, but um, Gadinsky really pushed for us and, and was really wanted to, to go for a big-budget producer and try and, you know, strike while the iron was hot and, and, and get us on our first album. Um, in hindsight, uh, you know, I think we should have stayed in Sydney and recorded. Um, there was plenty of good young producers there at the time, but, um, you know, it was a vision Mushroom had and um, it was a great experience to go overseas and, and work with a big-name producer. We found that um, he'd had success with, uh, you know, uh, bands over there, Dinosaur Jr. and Buffalo Tom. But in saying that, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we could have done just as well, you know, staying in Sydney, you know, working with young up-and-coming producers. You know, we had opportunities to sign sort of... Um you know uh, bigger contracts with the likes of warner brothers and sony and even bmg but we signed an australian only deal with mushroom and then we thought we'd chop ourselves around overseas so i mean using a big name producer overseas you know they're connected with the bigger record companies over there so you know not only uh, you know working with someone of his experience but um you know the leads and the contacts that he had i mean we played live shows over there a and r guys from record companies coming to check us out so you know it was an exciting time in saying that it's very hard to um break into an american market for every style of the style of music that you think you're offering you know they've got uh you know they've got 10 of their own it was uh i have an experience being so young um you know, but uh, once again, it's a whole different ball game over there. You know, uh, similar to what you've got now, trying to expose yourself on YouTube, you know, you had a MTV over there and you really, it, it, you know, I mean, you, it was about the music, but it was also about a visual, you know, and what kind of image you had. And you're talking big budget when you're, um, you know, doing video
1: clips that uh, stand up to an international standard. Along their rock and roll journey, Phineas toured with some of the biggest names in Australian music.
2: Midnight All, in particular were very supportive. Um, they sort of re- re- resurrected themselves. I can't think what the album was called, A 1,000 Watt RSL, I think it was. That was a big tour for us. Yeah, And we, we also sort of got on the back of the Hoodoo Gurus. And that was probably our crowd. That was probably where we were at. It definitely uh, got us a, the, the fan base that we wanted, yeah. Jim Magini and Rob Hurst particularly you know they were all about you know giving they gave us a lot of advice whether it was um, you know musical or songwriting advice or just to uh, how to handle handle the industry and try and make the right uh, managerial decisions but um, no definitely when we played with Australian bands there was a sense of
1: camaraderie
2: and uh, mateship definitely.
1: A. McPhee got to tour with and learn from some of the country's finest drummers, such as Paul Hester from Crowded House and Midnight Oil's Rob Hurst.
2: It was a fantastic experience to play with him. I think the second time we toured with Midnight Oil, for some reason Rob wasn't playing, whether that was due to illness, and we had uh, Paul Hester from um, Crowded House play drums. And I mean, that's big shoes to fill playing for Rob Hurst. You know, to, to see Hester play... You know, that was uh, something I always look back on with fond memories, yeah. I still uh, look back on my uh, experience. I remember talking to Paul after a show we did in Adelaide. As you know, Power and the Passion has a drum solo in it and uh, just talking about uh, how he managed to fill those shoes and and pull it off. You know, it's uh, big shoes to fill and, um, you know, he was a
1: fantastic guy. The music created by Finiscad also proved to be a favorite of t v producers of the time, and many of the band's songs were often used as mood setting soundtracks. Finishcad's songs were also used to pump up the stadium crowds at big time sporting events.
2: Yeah, I remember watching um the AFL grand final, I think it was nineteen ninety eight sitting with a bunch of friends at home and um you know, we all got up and did our thing at half time and um I can't think what song it was of ours that was playing in the background and um, Yeah, it was quite surreal, the sense of familiarity without being able to put your finger on it, and then we realised what was going on. They were playing Phinney Scout at half-time. Experiences like that are are fantastic, and uh, it's good to see uh, your music played, you know, uh, up against sport or, um, you know, uh, things you didn't assume it would be, you know, relevant to when you wrote the song.
1: When Rupert Murdoch's News Limited bought out Mushroom Records in 1998, This ultimately led to the demise of Finiscad. With the departure of Michael Godinski as a guiding force, young emerging mushroom bands such as Finiscad and the Mavises soon found themselves in the crosshairs of News Limited's accountants. And when the bean counters get involved in music, it's never going to end up well for the bands.
2: It was probably led to the demise of of not only Gad, but, you know, all these other bands you're talking about, there could have been close to a dozen bands that were signed to Mushroom at the time through a, um, a side label called Bark Records. I think Gadinsky had a long-term plan. You know, we were a band that needed to be groomed over two to three album sort of period, which, you know, could have taken, you know, minimum probably a five-year period, along with the other bands that he signed at the time. We were all young and in our early 20s. We headed overseas to record the record. After spending 18 months building up a relationship with Gadinsky and his staff, when we were overseas, Gadinsky decided to um, sell his majority share in the company to News Limited and focus on uh, you know, promoting and bringing out uh, high-profile overseas acts through Frontier Touring. Um, so by the time we come back from um, New York with what we thought was a great record, There was a whole new staff, an A&R running Mushroom that didn't see it the same way. And uh, they had different plans for what the future of Mushroom was. And, um, you know, although they still saw us as a possible success, um, it was hard after building up a relationship, you know, over you know a two- to three-year period with, um, you know, uh, Gadinsky and all his staff that were keen to work for us. Suddenly we were um, faced with all these new people that... um, you know didn't feel the same way about us we'd spent a, a lot of money promoting ourselves and going overseas and recording this big budget record and um you know the 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 new staff just couldn't see the sense in that and uh it was like starting from scratch again but um with a big uh, debt against our name which uh which made it hard you know it was definitely a hard time you know you uh, you take your time you know, as a, as, as, as a young person, as a band and, you know, you listen to it, you take advice from uh, people and you tread very carefully to sign the right kind of deal and be aware that, um, you know, there's a, a lot of traps in the music industry, especially through management, and you do everything you can to avoid that, and that's what we thought we'd done. We thought we'd sign with the right company and we're doing the, the right things only to have it all sort of taken away from us. We wanted to avoid that. There'd be bands, Australian bands that had come before us. Off the top of my head, I think there was a couple of high profile. Well, there was they weren't high profile, but there's a couple of rock bands in Sydney that came before us. Um, I think Mantissa was another, was one band. Scary Mother was perhaps another that went overseas and um, spent incredible amounts of money on production, and um, it didn't have the success that they thought. And that's the last thing we wanted to be. And all of a sudden, that's what we'd become. Um, you know, I think the, not just other bands, but the industry was looking at us just scratching their heads thinking, you know, what, what what is this band thinking and, you know, spending an incredible amount of money before having achieved any real success. Um, you know, and, and, and obviously, yeah, you know, uh, the bean counters look at this kind of thing and, um, you know, they probably have the ultimate decision on what goes on and ultimately the, the
1: band was dropped from uh, the record company while Finnish Cat's time at Mushroom didn't end so well, one of the highlights the band were able to experience was being handpicked by Gadinsky to play at the Mushroom 25th anniversary concert. The band got to share the stage with some of the biggest names in Australian music history. And the icing on the cake, the concert was held before a massive crowd at the famed MCG.
2: You know, it goes without saying, you know, the MCG, you know, the hallowed turf of of the G will go down as history as probably one of the great, um, you know, sporting venues, in my opinion, you know, probably in the world. I mean, it doesn't have worldwide recognition, but um, from an Australian standpoint, um, you know, to have the ability to play a venue like that wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for the Mushroom 25th anniversary. You know, you could, uh, you know, only uh, try and imagine what it would be like, you know, for the big supergroups of the world, you know, playing Wembley Stadiums and Madison Square Gardens, you know, to have a concert at the MCG would stack up to something like that. Great experience, yeah. He had a lot of confidence in us and, um, you know, at at that stage, uh, you know, everything was looking good for the future, but... um, you know, to mingle and be a part of that, um, you know, it was an exciting time. You know, we felt at that stage that we were, you know, we, we were relevant and we were fitting into the culture of not only Mushroom, but, um, you know, the, 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 the success of
1: Australian bands that had come before us, yeah. While the band got to play on the same stage as the big-named established acts, Finiscad's alternative rock credibility also saw them become part of the newly emerging festival scene. The band played at festivals such as The Big Day Out and Homebake.
2: I think um, we were fortunate when the album was released. It was the start of the summer. And the um, the festival circuit was really gaining momentum, particularly through The Big Day Out and um, Homebake. It, it was good timing for us. And, um, and yeah, it, it was... Uh, you know, it, it was a good time for new Australian music, you know, having ex- exposure through the festival scene and um, everybody that goes to festivals can remember the first one they were at and, um, you know, the experiences they had and, you know, I'm often running into people that um, can remember seeing Gad for the first time and, you know, seeing us at a festival, you know, yeah, it was a good time. We had a lot of good experiences, and it just—it uh, felt good to, uh, you know, contribute to, you know, uh, and be a part of so much good Australian music that was around at the time. Okay, that's enough of the
1: talk. Here's Coppertone by Finis Scad. Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. Thanks to Jono for your time and thanks to Finny Scad for the music.
3: Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marco's Promotions. Written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl!